Welcome to the 60th episode of the Hail Mary podcast. I'm A. Toves, and I'm joined by my husband, the Toves. We're back to recap the gritty win against Texas State. Let's get started. Once again, there were bobcat tears in the Alamo Dome. In front of the second largest crowd in UTSA history, the Roadrunners brought the bobcats back to earth and won the fifth straight I-35 showdown. The Roadrunners got on the board first with a 46-yard field goal by Chase Allen. On the next possession, Rocco Griffin rushed for his first touchdown as a roadrunner to take the 10-0 lead. Texas State answered back with a rushing touchdown. Then, injuries to Frank Harris, Makai Hart, and Brandon Matterson killed the roadrunner momentum, allowing Texas State to add a field goal to tie the game going into halftime. Frank Harris made a surprising return in the third quarter, and while he certainly wasn't himself, he had a beautiful touchdown pass to Willie McCoy to regain the lead. After Kavorian Barnes had the ball stripped from him in the fourth quarter, the defense held Texas State to just a field goal. The Roadrunners would add another 42-yard field goal in the fourth quarter to secure the win, 20-13. Before we start talking about the game, I know you had a couple of shout-outs you wanted to make. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, Fez Jamil, uh, apparently a listener of ours, didn't know, glad to have met him uh, post-game. Uh, Fez, thank you. Um, you know, we, we really enjoy hearing that others find what we do good. And it's, um, yeah, it's always great to meet somebody in person that you've, you know, interacted with on Twitter and other things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other shout out, of course, is one of our best friends, Tony and his wife, Rosie, both Texas State fans. Um, there wasn't like any trash talk going back and forth during the week, but, you know, I think we were all looking forward to just getting together for this game. We'll talk a little bit more about the interconnections, but uh, I, I hope they had fun and really just wanted to tell them thanks for, thanks for showing up. Thanks for enjoying the game with us. I know you guys lost, but don't fret. Let's get into the thoughts of the game. I'm going to let you start first. Yeah, I mean, once again, we expected this offensive showdown, and instead we got a defensive showdown. I mean... It's tough to judge things the beginning of the season. I think last season we thought, we're not going to have any shootouts, and we took, we got shootouts, right? Right. And now this season we're all, we're going to get shootouts. Here we are with defensive battles. Right. I mean, this is certainly a game, though, I think Texas State is going to want to have back. Absolutely. You know, there was just so many missed opportunities that they had. And honestly, look, I get it's a rivalry game, and usually with rivalry games there are aspects of that you know just missed opportunities you know the team that's not as good normally is the one that almost pulls off that upset Mm -hmm. you know in this case even though the line was pretty large I didn't feel like there was that much of a gap because of the way that you know Texas State had approached their game I mean some against Baylor but for the most part the way they now have invested in football so Let's start kind of diving just a little bit into the Texas State because mm-hmm. I really want to make sure that they understand hope isn't lost or anything. Like, this isn't the past year's Texas State teams. This, this is a good team. Yeah, it was so, kind of interesting to see on Twitter a couple of play- – I mean, it was probably like a quarter into the game when they were already like, pull TJ Finley and let's, you know, put the backup quarterback in. Yeah, it, it was it was pretty odd. But let's be honest, this is a really tough UTSA defense, right? I mean, first of all, they only put up 13 points and allowed 242 yards. So this isn't to say that 
that Texas State was just completely inept. Mm -hmm. Again, missed opportunities here. And let's start really with where I think the problem began, and that was their offensive line. Right. There was a lot of talk from Texas State pundits about the fact that this UIW offensive line has, you know, some NFL prospects. And because of it, look what they did to Baylor. Baylor's a P5 team and, you know, pushed him around. Well, from our viewpoint, we saw what it was. It was a Baylor team that wasn't well coached and was lackadaisical. They just didn't come to play. Not taking anything away from Texas State. Texas State came to play, and that was the problem for Baylor is that they weren't expecting Texas State to do so. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what happened, but if this is such a great line, then why were they being pushed around by UTSA? Because UTSA pushed around this team. And really what it came down to it was TJ Finley wasn't able to step into throws. He didn't have time to make decisions. When he did, they popped. But there were so many aspects of things. Specifically, they had some drop passes that killed drives early. That was big. Again, you have an offensive line that's not really protecting you. You're going to sail some throws. Well, what happened? He did miss some throws, but some of those were because he was starting to get pressured. And, right. you know, again, this and offensive line should have done a much better job, but they didn't. And that was even before, you know, one of their tackles went out. Right. I mean, this, to me, these offensive lines, both UTSA and Texas State, struggled because the defenses really came after each other. And, you know, Real quick on TJ, they're calling for Malik Hornsby to come in. But unless, and I, I didn't see the Texas State spring game or their spring practices, but Malik Hornsby was always an inaccurate quarterback. He could move around, he could run around, and that probably would have caused UTSA's defense issues. But you're telling me that you would have taken Malik Hornsby running around just so that you can move the ball a little bit or you know yeah. it, it just didn't seem like you know obviously the fans just jumped off the wagon way too quick right. tj finley's the right guy just need to protect him and they're certainly going to be lamenting that turf monster though that took down a uh, cole wilson um on i think it was the fourth quarter where you know tj finley did have that fabulous pass to him and he ran and almost made it to the goal line but man he just got tripped up thank you because it was a great pass now look, his momentum did take him down. So yeah, some of it was a turf monster, but some of it was the fact that Cole just kind of lost his balance as soon as he stretched out for that ball. Nothing wrong with that. You two did your job. You got Texas State's offense in the red zone. The problem is here is that they didn't execute after that. Right. Again, due to the UTSA defense, but also because it's so much easier for that defense to defend the red zone when you've got the back of the end zone as part of your you know, part of a, a extra defender. So, look, I also got to give kudos to Texas State defense. They really came after this UTSA offense. You know, to be honest with you, I thought this UTSA offensive line should have played better. But, you know, looking back, I, you know, I've questioned a lot of things about this UTSA offensive line. And, and because of it, Maybe it was just me having my UTSA homework glasses on, but this Texas State defense just really caused a lot of pressure on Frank. It caused a lot of havoc for this UTSA offense. And really what it came down to is they just wore down. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, UTSA ran 92 plays against that defense. Um, you know, it was essentially, essentially about 
it almost felt like almost 80% more, 80% more plays. Yeah, I mean, that, than, than UTSA. That was the challenge with, you know, GJ Kenny really trying to have that hurry up offense. Like, that's great when you're executing, but you guys weren't executing. You kept getting three and outs, and so your defense just by the end of the game was exhausted. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think that's what comes to the cusp of this Texas State review in that you still are like a recruiting class away. You know, I said it, you know, in our preview, like, you're a good team, but you need one more recruiting class. And the reason I think so is because if they're as good at evaluating the transfer portal as they are evaluating some of these high school players, you get that right mix in there. And this Texas State team next season is going to be quite good and I think is going to be a contender in the Sun Belt. But again, trust us. As UTSA fans, we've seen the hype of one season. You beat a P5, and then all of a sudden things just go downhill. And after that, things just don't recover. 2017? Yeah. Yep. I don't think that that's the Texas State team that we're talking about right now. I think that this is a team that's certainly causing some sweat on Jeff Trailer's brow. And I think they're going to be a problem over the next few years. Let's move on to UTSA. Look, they were kind of, they had a few penalties, but. I think you and I both agree there was a sloppiness to this game. Yeah. I mean, again, in terms of the penalties, we really only got hit for the one penalty um, false start for five yards. We had the unsportsmanlike conduct that was offsetting. We had a holding uh, penalty that was declined. But there is still just sort of this, yeah, sloppiness about the game where whether it was play calls not coming in on time, whether it was just wide receivers who didn't seem like they were getting the right separation. There just were little things that kind of added up. It it just led to a game that became a little uneven. Mm -hmm. And there was a struggle to this game. Not to say that UTSA was, I thought, was going to blow Texas State out, but there was opportunities, too, for UTSA to uh, really grab hold of this game. And it really, it felt like it was a tenuous hold. It didn't Mm -hmm. ever feel like... Like, they really were as in control as maybe we might think. I will say this, though. This sloppiness, it just feels like it's it's been sort of a downhill thing, no? Yeah. I mean, you know, when Jeff Trailer came in in 2020, he really talked about building his culture. And you saw, you know, this discipline in the team in 2020. And 2021 was probably the pinnacle where you saw the the team just so dialed in every time they would go into these tough situations, these tough games, you know, they went on that long undefeated stretch and they just seemed very focused and kind of saw a little bit of cracks in it, um, in 2022, but it just seems like we're not as focused and as crisp as we have been in the past. And a lot of that goes to the coaching staff. Players are going to reflect the coaching. They're going to reflect what the habits they set in practice. And, you know, I, I don't think it's as crisp and things are going as crisp. Some of it has to do with the fact that you've got key injuries. But for the most part, you, you got to find a way to make sure you stay disciplined. And, you know, I've long said, whether it's been on the podcast or just off the podcast, that you've got an emotional coach. And that mm-hmm. emotional coach gets his players emotional. They're, they're taking on that personality. But as you start getting a little sloppy and, you know, Coach Trailer admitted as much, you know, it was like they were having trouble hearing each other on the sideline because it was so loud. 
it's still no excuse. Like you, you've got to find ways. You you got to right. find solutions. But it feels like there's always something, right? Well, we want to pack the dome. Well, now it makes everything louder. You you've got to know that going in, right? right? But there really is no excuse to the sloppiness. You kind of see it, and it's concerning because if you don't really clean this up, it's gonna be a problem the rest of the year. Okay, I alluded to the crowd noise. Let's talk about the game day experience. Yeah, I mean, 49,326, I think, was the number. Second largest crowd in program history after only our very first game in the Alamo Dome. I mean, that's a gigantic number, um, and it was really exciting to see. Now, Texas State, at one point, tried to make it sound like this was a, a neutral field. They were bringing that many people. I mean, certainly, they brought... A, a large crowd, a larger crowd than we typically see from our competitors. And they were loud, but it was not a neutral sight by any no, means. No, no, no. But with that, I will say it was fun knowing that two teams like this, two regional rivals, mm -hmm. could do this. This is something that, you know, you would think of maybe a Texas and Texas A&M would do. I know they would be much larger than 49,000, but j just think about it like 30 years ago when they had smaller stadiums. This is what it was like. You know, mm -hmm. you're packing, you know, whatever stadium it is. So it's fun to know that you can go to San Marcos, pack, you know, Bobcat Stadium, and you can come to the Because they can't dome. fill 49,000 in their stadium. <laughs> no, They can't no. open a rafter on top like we can. <laughs> no, but it is good to know that we don't have to depend on a body bag game like a UT, like an A&M, or any other big name to come in. We can just look north to Texas State, and we know that we're going to get a really good crowd. And that, I think, was what's great about this rivalry game. And the tailgating scene was amazing. I think that's probably the best tailgating scene we've seen in terms of just the sheer number of people that were out there tailgating. And you saw this mix of Texas State fans and UTSA fans all kind of together. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, going back to what we've been talking about, this rivalry game really is bringing out, really gets everybody connected. You know, we kind of alluded to it earlier with our friends, but, you know, you kind of start talking about the fact that, you know, you've got either family members that have, that are alums of Texas State or, you know, UTSA. So it's very much the type of rivalry that you do want to, really want to focus on. Right. To me, it feels like something that you would, you should see it in like Thanksgiving. Because I think that right. when, when you're all together anyway, you're getting together for the holidays, why not get together to go to a Texas State and UTSA, UTSA game? Yeah. So, you know, there's certainly a lot to, to go with that. However... There is one aspect that you weren't a fan of. Yeah, no, I was not a fan of the joint band, joint palm squad appearances. It just felt odd. First of all, this is the fifth time that we've met. Now, granted, the last time we played, it certainly was a little different of a season because we were yeah. in the middle of COVID. But we've never done this before in the previous years. I don't know where the decision came from to have this joint band, joint palm routine um, thing came from, but it was just odd. I mean, this is a rivalry. The results on the field perhaps don't spell that out in terms of football, but Texas State is a rival in basketball and volleyball and soccer and, you know, all these other sports. So you don't get on the field and do a joint practice and have this kind of like we're friends family <laughs> moment 
with a rival. Like you're never going to see the Texas A&M fighting Aggie marching band and the, you know, Texas band on the field at the same time. Like that would never happen. So. Though I would like to see, you know, the yell leaders get together with cheerleaders. I think that would be a scene, wouldn't it? Like That would <laughs> certainly be fascinating. <laughs> but I, I get it. I mean, you know, for me, I didn't really care because I was much more stuck on the game and the fact that right. there was some lulls and there were some things that just kind of, it was difficult to really kind of get through the game due to some, you know, due to some injuries, due to some, you know, a lot of commercial breaks. So, yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, I had given it a week and I thought that maybe that's what it was. It made it choppy, but essentially Texas State and UTSA being friends on the field and then add the choppiness of the game, it just felt like this game just stretched out. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I don't know certainly, how you felt necessarily about that. I was going to say, it, first of all, it felt fed into the Texas State narrative of this being a neutral site. Like, it's not a neutral site. Right. But in terms of just kind of the flow of the game, you know, I think there was a lot of feedback on Twitter about whether or not it sounded as loud as it, as 49,000 should sound, you know. And did it sound louder when we were in the championship game last year, the year before, or whatever. But I think part of it was... A, the flow of the game kind of took the crowd out of it at times. B, this was a grinding defensive battle, and those are not the kind of games that people get super excited about. You know, this isn't the explosive air raid style offense that we've seen in the past, and those are the types of, you know, games where people can get really excited, and there's lots of cheering, and, you know, it's like, this is kind of like that, like, Iowa Hawkeyes kind of game where... (laughs) I know. You went there. Where it just, it's not as thrilling for the fans. So I don't, again, I don't know that it was like a problem so much with the crowd because certainly there were moments where it was really loud. I just think it's the style of the game and the fact that there was like an injury, it seemed like every five minutes wore yeah. a timeout. Yeah, that that's a very good point. All right. Let's start looking at uh, the sides of the ball. Let's start with the special teams. I think that they, it wasn't as sloppy as, say, game one, but I don't feel like it was necessarily completely corrected. Now, look, I would say in terms of game flow, in terms of what you're talking about returns, it seemed fine. Mm-hmm. But there were personnel running on and off the field trying to make sure you had the right guys there. And it really feeds into what you had been talking about in terms of being, you know, needing a special teams coordinator. Right, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of, um, times I noticed, particularly when we, when we rewatched the game, that um, I think it was on punts where they're literally trying to get additional personnel out because we didn't have enough guys on the field. So it was a little frustrating. And honestly, to me, it goes back to, like I said in the previous, in the preview, when everybody is responsible for special teams, no one is accountable. Right. And to me, that just seemed very evident by not having the right personnel on the field at times and kind of having this sort of confusion. Yeah, and it was unfortunate, right? Because you know that they have worked on it, and you saw, again, some tangible improvement on it. Sure. But I feel like there's going to be other teams that are going to take advantage of that, right? Right. And, and that, to me, is, is just something to watch out for. I just never noticed this stuff the last couple of years when we had a special teams coordinator. Right. Still had some issues, but we didn't see this type of disorganization. Again, 
Let's go back to that sloppiness we were talking about, right? Now, there is one thing that you did love about special teams. Yeah, I mean, certainly Chase Allen came out. He'd had an injury last week. He has two really key field goals and both over 40 yards. So it was great to see him come out and just feel confident. And had I not known that he was injured last week, I wouldn't have been able to tell based on how he kicked. Very good point. That's a very good point because I thought he really put some good oomph on that ball. I mean, Mm -hmm. none of those kicks seemed like they were going to be short. No, he seemed very comfortable. Yeah. Now, do you want to say condolences to to him as his grandmother did pass away uh, last week? So it is good, though, to see him, you know, possibly deal with it by just playing in the game. Mm-hmm. Everybody deals with things differently, but, you know, I, it's got to be someone smiling down on him if, you know, he was able to make those kicks. So, you know, Chase, our condolences. Thank you for being a bright spot on special teams. Yep. Let's go to the offense. All right. We said it's some keys to the game here. Uh, there was two that really are kind of one and the same. It was win in the trenches and establish the run game. Well, we rushed for 54, 54 times excuse me, for 158 yards. However, we did give up five sacks and really multiple pressures on Frank mm-hmm. and Eddie Lee. Another key was for Justin Burke to make Frank comfortable. Well... I think looking at it, Frank's stats will make it deceptively look like that, mm-hmm. but I don't know that he necessarily was. But let's talk a few bright spots that you saw. Yeah, I mean, it was really exciting to see two of our new um, players on the team score touchdowns in this game. Rocco Griffin, transfer from Vanderbilt, gets his first rushing touchdown. Willie McCoy, a Juco transfer, gets his first um, receiving touchdown. And what a catch that was by Willie. I mean, it almost, yeah. if you didn't know that it was Willie, you would have thought it was Josh Cephas, you know, out there just because he really did a great job and it was very aware of his body and how he caught that ball. Absolutely. Um, and then overall, the running backs, I thought, had a great performance. I mean, certainly um, Kavorian Barnes, we know is going to be that number one receiver. He hit a thousand career rushing yards during this game. He had a little cocky moment, perhaps, where he fumbled the ball, but it was really great, I thought, to see um, Robert Henry out there. He looked really fast, and of course, we've already talked about Rocco Griffin getting his first touchdown, but kind of hoping that we see a little bit more of those other two running backs, and like I said before, how exciting is it that we can talk about having three really talented running backs on the field, all healthy at the same time? Absolutely great. I mean, you're right. It, I, I like the way you talked about these running backs because I felt the same way. I felt there was that Rocco got kind of the, the shaft last week because it yeah. felt like he was handed off the ball and he really had nowhere to go. He essentially was just hold on to the ball, Rocco, because you're about to get hit immediately. Mm-hmm. So it was good to see him turn the corner and wow, I mean, it, it was such a great, great corner that he took because a uh, 20 yard touchdown was absolutely pretty. Robert Henry, I, I like the way you put it with him because he did look, there was just this juice that all of a sudden you saw. Yeah. And wow. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, there's just, they're going to be fun to watch. And I think, I think based on some of the play calling and things that we're going to have to adjust, that I think we'll see more of them. Sure. Um, and so I think you'll have a little more twinkle in your eye and you'll probably be gushing more about these uh, rushers here uh, as the weeks go by. Yep. 
I thought the other bright spot in the offense was the fact that we executed our four-minute offense in the fourth quarter. I can't tell you how many times we've talked in this podcast and been frustrated because we had, whether it was a two-minute offense, a four-minute offense, at the end of the game, and we just couldn't hold on to the ball, and we ended up having to, to punt and give it back to the other team and then just hope that the defense would be able to come up with that stop. And, you know, throughout the trailer era, we've been in so many one-possession games that it was just, to me, really exciting to see them execute on that in this game. Particularly because, as you are about to say, Frank, you know, obviously is not himself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Obviously, he went down, if you're watching the game, he went down twice, what looked like with a uh, lower body injury uh, in the first half. In the second half, he went down again, but that was... Uh, more of a mm, guy's thing, <laughs> or he I got kind of smacked uh, in the wrong smacked spot. around in the, uh, <laughs> in the pylon. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, yeah, but uh, not to make light of this, but, you know, Frank was wearing a boot in the post-game press, presser. Um, look, I, the thing with Frank is that in every season he's played, he's always been somewhat nicked up at some point. But mm-hmm. this... This season just feels like it's happening so much earlier. The problem is, of course, it's coming off the fact that, you know, he had that major surgery, you know, in the late spring going into the summer. So it really did affect him. And so I I just don't see that his health is going to be necessarily improved through the rest of the season. I I don't see that there's going to be 100% 100 Frank this season. I think we're going to be lucky if we see 85% Frank. Yeah, that's a fair point. And look... One of the issues I had with with seeing Frank again in the second half was the fact that it just felt like, I don't even want to say that it was a career ender is what it looked like. I mean, obviously we were all sort of suspended in disbelief, like, you know, what what's happening with Frank. But it also felt like this isn't going to be something that he returns mm-hmm. for next week. Yet, here he tried it out in the second half, and it felt like, I just felt like, trailer was making a mistake because of the fact that you know he said later that the medical staff told him that frank was okay look i get that but i think part of that and something we've talked about is the fact that trailer has talked about having to save frank from frank but it didn't feel like it was happening in this situation right you know if our goal is to be in the conference championship at the end of the season we're going to need a healthy-ish Frank, as healthy as we can get him, to execute on this offense and be successful. And still probably not execute on the type of offense that we're used to seeing. But in order to do that, Frank is going to need some time to recover from... He can't take these hits every single game. We're about to play a very physical Army team. And then we head to Tennessee. You know, and you... You just have to stop and think, okay, not that any of us want to lose any of these games, but they're not counting towards that conference championship. And, you know, maybe we're just going to have to accept that we might not have the type of game that we want against Army or against Tennessee. But if that means that we have a healthy Frank at the end of the season, then it'll be worth it. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's the problem is that neither Trailer nor Frank see this season as wanting to be jeopardized because of Frank's health. 
you know, <laughs> I, I communicated it really poorly last week. I was trying to say that every game here in, in college football is magnified because every game does matter, right? Like there is there is something to that. But it matters if you think you can get to the New Year's Six Bowl. Right. Once we lost to Houston, I felt like that was out the door. That right. was it's just not something that was going to be realistic. Now, like you said, there is still another goal. There's the goal of the conference championship game. It's something that we can still strive towards. But that's where I think that in order to get a much healthier Frank Harris, we've both talked about it away from the pod, but we think that it's best to put him on the sideline for the next two weeks and then bring him back for Temple. Yeah, at a minimum, the the Tennessee game. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just don't see that that's that you're going to necessarily improve on whatever injury that is, and you're going to get such a limited Frank that it's just really not going to be worth it. Right. All right, well, let's go to how Frank's injury affects play calling because that is a problem. You know, I still don't think that Justin Burke and Frank are meshing well. You know, there was a lot of talk about sort of these West Coast concepts that, you know, Burke and Stein had taught Trailer last season, yet here we are. It doesn't look like that's what Burke is actually calling. If Burke was, once Texas State was absolutely coming full blitz on Frank, it should have been slant, throws across the middle. Mm -hmm. That's how you attack a blitzing defense. But we weren't seeing that, and that falls under the offensive coordinator. And then we talk about execution in terms of offense. Look, I get that Burke is probably calling on the same base plays that we have over the last few years, but if they're not being executed, that's still on Justin Burke. Right. This offense is under his purview. So no matter how you want to see it, Justin Burke right now feels like a liability. I said every game just a few minutes ago with about Frank and Trailer was that these are magnified. We're now three games into Justin Burke calling plays. That's a quarter of a college football season. To this point, I'm not impressed with what I've seen because he's not getting, to me, the best out of his players. He's not putting Frank in a great position, and we're not really seeing the steps need to be made. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the problems, though, is that Frank isn't healthy. So he didn't get to play in the spring. He didn't get to play in the summer, which meant that he didn't get a chance to establish a relationship with some of these young wide receivers. Right. Therein lies the problem, right? We've now come to the core of we've got essentially a root cause to why this offense is running because Frank isn't playing, is just not healthy, right? But Burke and Trailer have to make a decision. Do you play Frank? And then how do you scheme around his injuries? Yeah, I mean, we've said it before. There are less talented quarterbacks than Frank that are out there that are in successful teams. And it's because the offensive coordinator has been able to build that scheme around him. And, and that's what we're going to have to do. You know, we're going to have to make adjustments to our offense so that we can put Frank in the best possible scenario. Right. And some of that also means that, you know, again, with these West Coast concepts is getting the ball out quickly. Mm -hmm. That's another thing with, you know, when you're getting blitzed, get that ball out quick because you get it out quick. Now all of a the defense is starting to chase instead, mm -hmm. instead of, being the aggressor there. So, you know, for me, there are two things going on here. Obviously, like I said, you know, there's the problem with Frank's health, which he's overcompensating at times by staring down at his favorite receivers. 
Oscar and Josh a little too much and then forcing it there because he just doesn't have the trust with these other younger receivers. But there's also the problem of Burke just not putting the plays in that really are needed to. And, you know, again, the sloppiness on offense, this lack of execution, they've got to see it in right. practice because it can't be something that's just all of a sudden a surprise once they come to the game. So, you know, overall, I think there's got to be a lot of work done here on the offensive, offensive side. Um, any other last things you've got in terms of offense? Yeah, I mean, when these wide receivers do get a look from Frank, we've got to make sure that they're on. You know, Tyke is somebody who, you know, he is one of Frank's more favored targets because they do have that um, relationship. And we saw some great catches by Tyke in this game, but we got to get that every single time. Yeah, I mean, his whole thing was potential, right? And that's the thing is that, like, it doesn't feel like you're still getting the best out of Ty Key. We've talked a lot about the play calling, talked a lot about Frank. Any other things that we learned about the offense this week? Um, I mean, I think, again, here we are facing one more season with an offensive line that is injured or injury prone. Um, and again, that goes back to we've got to make sure that we have an offensive line who's going to be able to protect Frank because he's not going to be as mobile. Um, so that's another place where we're really going to have to make some adjustments here pretty quickly and figure out what we can do to get the right people in the right positions so that they can protect Frank and that they can, in particular, that they can pass block because that is really where the lowest PFF scores for this team were. Yeah, it, it uh, the pass blocking was not very good, but when you're essentially having to absorb blitz after blitz after blitz and your quarterback isn't making the reads quick enough or if the plays are taking too long to develop. I mean, yeah. these offensive linemen also need some help, right? That was a, a, a good Texas State front seven. I think if they keep adding pieces, it's going gonna, it, gonna to get even more dangerous. But, I mean, compare that to, I think, the rest of uh, our opponents this season. This might be one of the top defenses we face, but that's also a little worrisome because – or two games into the season, and I'm saying might. Yeah. There, there could be ones that are better. And um, based on what we've seen from the UTSA offense and the offensive line's health, <laughs> man, that I think is what worries me more about Frank at this point. All right, let's move into the defense. You talked about some of the keys for the defense that we needed to have our head on a swivel, plenty of misdirections, um, isolation created by Texas offense. I mean, I thought the defensive line did – an amazing job. They didn't allow Texas State really to dictate to them what the plays were. It seemed like they were really winning that line of scrimmage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think you put it well. Like, it was UTSA imposing their will on right. Texas on Texas State's offense. And, you know, watching the, the games from last week, I mean, obviously it's just a one-game sample, right? Like, <laughs> that, that's all it is. But it was always a, it is a little nervous nervousness coming sleeping in because of the fact that you weren't really sure what Kinney was gonna do. I mean, uh, I, I will say there is a base plan to what Kinney and his offensive staff offensive staff do, but this defense took those things away and they were searching for answers as well. The problem for them was the fact that <laughs> they were getting pressured on heavily pressured on passing plays, and then their running game wasn't going. So there wasn't a lot happening for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, another key in this game was to win, win the trenches, and I think I think we already covered that they did. Well, one of the things that, though, 
that you want to see more of, and this key just didn't seem to happen this game, is creating and capitalizing on turnovers. Yeah, you know, I was really hoping that we were going to see um, TJ Finlay make some mistakes in this game. And, you know, that's something that he's been somewhat prone to do, you know, right, is to throw those right. interceptions. Um, sadly, that didn't happen, but, you know, hopefully that'll that'll occur later in the season. <laughs> I think it will. I mean, last season there was this lack of turnovers early in the season, and then all of a sudden they started coming, right? Like, we, we started playing some other teams, and we started creating those turnovers. But, you know, I think early on this defense has really, really been top-notch. Um, they are defending well, defending the pass well. They're defending the rush well. It's it's looking like a historic defense. I mean, they're averaging, giving up 288 yards per game. The record in UTSA history books is 287.8 from that 2017 defense. So, I mean, there's still more games to play, and, and, and it could, those total yards could rise, but... This defense really feels special, and I have to give credit to defensive coordinator Jess Lepp. How do those words taste coming out of your mouth? Uh, like vinegar is what it feels like. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I have given, I have dogged him, but again, I'm not afraid to say that I was wrong, and I'm glad I'm wrong. Like this defense, right. like I said, is fantastic, and he's called some great games since the CUSA championship game. I mean, we're talking about. Some tough games. Obviously, you have a conference championship game against North Texas. You have the Troy uh, Cure Bowl game. And then you start out with Houston and Texas State. Really, a Texas State offense that looked like, I mean, was going to be really dangerous. Right. And he holds them to 13 points. Like, he and his staff have put together some great talent on the this side of the ball. And, you know, I had doubted... You know, some things about the secondary. I doubted some other pieces. You doubted some of the linebackers. But, man, I mean, they're just flying around. Right. I think we want to talk, though, about some of the guys that did stand out in this game. Like, Jamori Robinson had himself a nice game. Nana Anyewu. <laughs> uh, I just learned how to say your name. And then it feels like he went down with an injury. I hope it's not severe. But, man. It didn't look great. Yeah. These two, both Jamori and Nana, really were playing well. I was really excited for them. You know what I'm more excited about is the fact that we didn't. We're not talking about Donye or we're not talking about Brandon Matterson or some of these other guys. Not to say that they didn't have great games, but it's really fun talking about these yeah. new defensive players that have just kind of come up from the depth charts. Yeah, I mean Trumaine Bell. Obviously, he's a vet. He's been around for a number of years. He had an amazing game as well. And then one of the areas where, again, I had a question mark going into the preseason and a question mark in the Houston game was that middle linebacker next to Jamal and Martavius French and Avery Morris both had really great games. Again, Jamal had a good game, but glad to see these other two guys stepping up and being able to talk about them because I wasn't really sure how that they were handling that role after the Houston game. And look, one thing that we love on this podcast more than anything is being able to come on here and talk about where we were wrong. Yeah. Now, again, we're only two games into the season, but it's hard to believe that their play is going to really fall off over the course of the season. So, really excited for this defense. Gotta say, though, Trey Moore, wow, he's special. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about these other players, but it feels like 
he's helped elevate some of these guys, and they in return have really freed up some of this, some of these you know offensive linemen and running backs away from Trey, and it's given Trey more, really some one-on-one opportunities that I don't think that. I don't think he's going to have that opportunities later in the season. I think there's probably going to be a lot of chipping. There's going to be a lot of double teams coming his way. But are you really going to tell me that you're going to double team Trey and then let a Jamori come in or, you know, yeah. I mean, just start naming names. And again, it's also fun to know that we can also learn some new names. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, t- we'll talk about Army later on, but boy, are they going to be sorry that Trey ended up coming to UTSA instead of Army. Because that was his only other school that he had an offer from. Okay. Enough with the Lep love, because I do have (laughs) one big issue with him. We kind of talked about it in terms of the sloppiness. Some of his defensive calls were really slow coming into the game, and that's just inexcusable at this point in his career. I mean, um, it's not like this is his first season that he's doing this. And there were plenty of times that you saw the defensive line and some of the linebackers looking to the sideline, waiting for a call, and Texas State was already lined up, and they were ready to uh, hike the ball. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is just something that you got to understand tempo, you got to understand the flow of the game, and you've got to be ready. I, I know that there's going to be matchups, but, man, you've got to be set. Like, there is just – there's no breaks for the defense. It's not fun for defensive coordinators, but I will say, Lep, you're doing a great job. All right, let's talk about some things we learned about the defense. I mean, just looking over their PFF scores, we had 10 players that had a score above 70, which is above average. I mean, that's just amazing. And again, kind of goes back to your comment earlier that this could be the best defense that we have had at UTSA. Absolutely. I mean, look, we're talking about different names, which speaks to the depth. We're looking at, you know, the record book. It's fun. I cannot wait to see what Lep has in store for this defense. And Sadiq Haynes and Brad Sherrod. All these guys that have put that have been on the defensive staff. You know, you put together the talent, but you're also getting the most out of these guys. And that, more than anything, has to be the brightest of bright spots for UTSA early in this season. All right, let's get into the Army preview. The line has opened up at 10.5. I feel like that is a bit generous for UTSA. Really? I do. I mean, certainly, Army has had some struggles, and we're going to talk about that. But so have we. Yeah, that's fair. And traditionally, this has been a tight game with Army. It's been very competitive. So I find that interesting. We'll see how that plays out. Um, this is going to be an interesting game for me personally as well. I have a bunch of coworkers that are going to be coming <laughs> that are Army fans. So, you know, this is going to be an exciting game for us. Um, so let's get into the Army offense. This year, it's a different look for Army. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, um, Army has made a change in their offensive scheme. They're moving away from the traditional triple option where they're under center It's kind of a modified version out of shotgun. The reason for this really comes to changes that have been made um, by the NCAA in terms of the cut block rules out of tackle. Basically what that means is that the offensive line has to change how they block against the defensive line. So Army this year has 
a completely different offensive line. These are bigger guys than what you've seen from the Army in the past. The way that they're blocking, again, instead of you're going to see them kind of standing up and blocking, which is very different. So they've had to learn a different skill set. Um, it's also very different for the quarterback, who has traditionally been under center for Army. Going into a shotgun is a different look. Um, and then they have a new offensive coordinator. Um, they brought in um, Drew Thatcher from Nebraska Kearney to really help them kind of orchestrate this new look for Army. And you'll hear different people kind of talk about what that means and, and how dramatic this is really going to be. But basically, you're, you're still going to see a triple option look. It's just out of shotgun, not under center. There's still going to be a run-based offense. Yeah. Bryson Daly is a new quarterback. He's still getting comfortable with his throwing. Again, like I said, you're still going to see a run-based offense. The last two games, Bryson Daly has thrown 11 times. In the UTSA game, you're going to see something between 10 to 15 um, attempts. So not a lot of passing, but certainly more passing than you've seen traditionally from Army. Yeah, I mean, and look, I, I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to actually pin your ears back and pass rush. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just... That, that's going to be a new concept for it. Um, and, you know, based on what we've seen, it's not like this Army offense uh, has been inept. It's just had problems finishing drives. Sure. And, you know, I think, it, you know, again, it's it's the offensive coordinator trying to figure out how to continue the concepts they've had before and, you know, figure out how to work that into a red zone offense with a new offensive line and with a quarterback that's getting, you know, still getting comfortable, or at least trying to figure out what is makes him comfortable when it comes to passing the ball. Because normally, it was sort of a fake option, and then they would just, you know, it would be like throwing three or four times a game, but they'd get like, you know, 150 yards off of it because right. they're just throwing bombs. Um, so, last year, they lit us up. Yeah. So, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see just how things go. Yeah, and this year, there's been kind of mixed results results um, from Army's offense when it comes to the passing game. You know, they certainly looked really good against um, Delaware State. We'll talk more about them um, (laughs) in a little bit. But in terms of rushing, Army has returned 57% of their rushing yard production. They have several different running backs that you're going to see, Miles Stewart, Hayden Reed. Um, But right now, Bryson Daly, their quarterback, is currently their leading rusher. Sounds familiar to UTSA fans in that at times we've seen Frank Harris as our leading rusher when he was healthy. So, yeah, you know, you're certainly going to see a lot of quarterback keeps. Um, You're going to see Bryson Daly um, rushing quite a bit. Um, The two wide receivers that um, have had the most catches in the last couple of games have been um, Isaiah Alston and Tyson Riley. They both scored touchdowns in in the last game. You're going to see some more bubble screens plays that you haven't seen from Army in the past. Um, But one of the things to keep an eye on is their turnovers. Um, They had five turnovers in their first game against Louisiana Monroe, three fumbles and two interceptions. And then against a very weak Delaware State last week, they had two fumbles. Defensively, I think you're going to see a stronger unit than their offense. 
It's been interesting. There's been some uncharacteristic penalties on defense for Army. They had a targeting call in, in the Louisiana Monroe game. They had a horse collar call in the Delaware State game. There's just aren't things that you typically see from Army, which is kind of interesting and something I think to kind of keep an eye on. Again, overall, not a lot of penalties, but those are big penalties in terms of a yardage. Yeah. Um, and again, just not something that's typical from Army because you typically see a very disciplined group. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in this next game. Well, when they played Delaware State, there was a lot of ineptitude on Delaware. Delaware State is a terrible FCS team. Yeah. When you have a your running back, actually both their running backs were running the wrong way on handoffs. And then one of the running backs essentially hits their quarterback as he's trying to make, almost sacked him yeah. uh, before he made throws essentially like a bubble screen <laughs> it was it was funny yet sad at the same point at the same time because you know those guys are trying hard you know that's not how they practice it but for whatever reason the calls coming in were confusing these guys <laughs> it just it, it had some comical moments in the first half yeah and, and Delaware State's quarterback went back or went down with an injury very early in the game and and not that it looked like it was going to be a great game with the starter in there, but it certainly really unraveled at that point. <laughs> well, again, it was he was handing off to his left, and his running back went right, and then he just essentially gets clobbered by the defensive end. It was, uh, you know, I'm not trying to make light of it, but it was just, it's what you see in movies, right? When yeah. like things are going bad, it it was just bad at Delaware State. Yeah, so it's it's a little difficult to really get a good gauge on the Army just from these two games because, again, you saw them play Louisiana Monroe. They're a good FBS team. They're not a great FBS team. Army held the lead throughout the um, the game to the fourth quarter and then just kind of fell apart. Um, but they certainly didn't have a really strong game offensively. They didn't score a touchdown offensively. No. They scored one defensively um, and then had two um, field goals. They also had a missed field goal. And so when you look at the special teams just overall, you've had a missed 37-yard field goal in the um, Louisiana Monroe game. And then they missed a 58-yard field goal against Delaware State, which we mentioned was certainly not um, a tough opponent. They blew out Delaware State, but again, you know, a very different caliber opponent compared to Louisiana Monroe and certainly what they're going to face in UTSA. I would expect to see them go for it on fourth down a lot more than you did against Louisiana Monroe. Again, Army is traditionally a team that's going to, you know, take four downs. They're going to run. They're going to be very disciplined, very consistent. You're going to see that again against UTSA. Um, So let's get into what we think our keys to victory are going to be. All right. For the UTSA offense, the keys to victory are, are, there's two of them and they're simple. First, take advantage of those short cornerbacks. They have a much better secondary than they have in the past few years. However, these cornerbacks are pretty short. They're 5'11", 5'10". They don't have anybody 6' or, or taller. We've got some taller wide receivers. Josh Cephas, JT Clark if he plays. You know, Certainly, guys that can reach up and make some catches. So something to think about there. The other thing would be, and here's what would be a key, would be to lean on some of those West Coast office con- offense concepts that Justin Burke and Will Stein taught Jeff Trailer. Hopefully that's what he's talking about, going to back to the 
uh, drawing board with, which is use the short passing game. Use some of these offensive rushing concepts that they had in the West Coast offense to get this offense rolling a little bit more. And I think they can do that against this uh, Army defense. It's just probably going to still take a little bit of time because of the fact that it's very timing-based and that Frank just hasn't been practicing, right? On defense, going to have to watch out and limit that over-pursuit on the ball carriers. You know, Army, for everything they do, they're also very good at um, misdirection. So you over-pursue and you can put yourself out of a play. And mm -hmm. we've seen UTSA do that in the last few games they've played them. So certainly Army's offense is going to try to force UTSA essentially just use that athletic ability against them. So something to watch out there. Last thing is, I think we just need the defensive line to create pressure on the quarterback. We talked about the fact that they're in going to be in shotgun we talked about the fact that there's going to be some pass rushing opportunities here because you said they're probably going to that army's probably going to pass about 10 to 15 times a game opportunities for our defensive line to continue to solidify win in the trenches and dominate this army offensive line they did it against texas state they held up pretty well against houston i think this should just be another battle i'd say a little bit not as difficult as texas state but still going to be a difficult battle, right? Not going to be something that's going to be easy. So since it's early in the week, it's time for our way too early predictions. Yeah. Never underestimate Army. Regardless of what offensive scheme they're running, they are focused, they are disciplined, and they're able to bounce back. They were able to gain confidence against this FCS team in Delaware State. They haven't faced the level of competition that they had or that they're going to face against UTSA. But if we can stay focused, if we can stop the run game, if we can get pressure on that quarterback, I think we can make Daly uncomfortable and prevent him from passing and force some turnovers. I know I sound like a broken record in talking about <laughs> forcing turnovers with quarterbacks, but again, I think we can do that and we can be successful. Um, on offense, Burke is going to have to find a different scheme around Frank. Our offensive line is going to need to do a better job protecting him. We've been successful in the run game, so I expect that we're going to do that again. But I think this is going to be a low-scoring, grinded-out, not-pretty, not-exciting kind of game. I think UTSA will be able to pull out the victory, but it's going to be close. So give me UTSA 20 over Army 17. All right. Look, the days of underestimating Army should be over, in my opinion. I mean, this is the third time that Trailer and staff have faced this Army squad. And aside from operating out of the shotgun, I don't think there's much difference from the previous seasons uh, that we've seen them, all right? This UTSA defense is playing as if it's been told they're the worst in the nation. I mean, they are salty. They go out there, and they are crushing some opponents. And they've been the key to this UTSA even competing in the first two games. If they give up more points, we're getting blown out by Texas State and Houston. So look, it's clear that Trailer has talked post-game about leaning on Lep and company to get another win. Uh, this offense, I think, is still going to slog through another week with uh, Frank hopefully getting through the game healthy. I mean, it's a short week, so I don't think that there's going to be too much mm -hmm. that they can fix 
and there's not a lot that you're going to want to install for Tennessee. So, you know, I get what, that you think it's going to be close, but I think UTSA covers. Give me UTSA 24 to 10 in the Dome. All right, before we go, let's talk about a couple of key matchups this past weekend in the American Conference. Rice pulled out a stunner and beat Houston in double overtime, 43 <laughs> to 41 at home. I mean, you got to hand it to Rice. It was amazing. They've gone up 28 to 0 in the first half. Houston mounts a comeback, but they were able to pull it together and win in double overtime. I mean, who would have thought? On the one hand, it's a little bittersweet because you keep thinking in the back of your mind, like, we should have beat Houston, Rice just beat them. But on the other hand, like, you got to hand it to Rice. Like, good for them. All 20, 25 students that were at the game rushed the field afterwards. <laughs> I mean, it's an exciting moment for that program. Yeah, and you know what? It, it, just, it just makes it much more difficult to swallow that pill from last week. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's the mistakes that UTSA makes Rice is able to overcome their own mistakes and allow Houston to come back and still beat them in overtime I I just I don't know I I think there's just something that Dana has over a trailer so um, look you're right good for Rice Um, you know I think maybe JT Daniels being there gives them some competent quarterback play so that really helps what Rice is doing uh, but, again, he's only there for like a year, so it's only a short-term Band-Aid. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the season goes. But, yeah, congrats, Rice. Yeah, and then Tulane, while they lost to Ole Miss 37-20, they still had a respectable showing. And, you know, right before the game started, they announced that Pratt was going to be out. You know, it kind of seemed like maybe this was going to be kind of, you know, a very lopsided game without Pratt, that Ole Miss would come in and – you know, really just laid on thick. But Tulane did well, and they had this respectable showing. So good for them. Overall, for the American, it's great to see, you know, Tulane have a very competitive game. Who knows um, what's going to happen in terms of Pratt's injury long-term and what that really means for them. But Yeah, I mean, honestly, they look, I think that they look better than everybody has thought. You know, to your point, if Pratt is out for a long time, what does that mean for them? Uh, but it's kind of interesting that we're kind of going through the same thing, except mm-hmm. UTSA isn't playing to me overall as a team as well as Tulane has. So it'll be fun to see how Tulane goes. But, you know, obviously we would we would love UTSA to play well, go undefeated in conference, and go into, you know, Tulane Stadium at the end of the season and, you know, play for a chance to go into the championship game, so. And then another completely different story, North Texas lost to FIU 46-39. to It's just interesting to watch the UNT faithful absolutely melt down after this loss. Certainly, they had higher expectations for their new coaching staff. Losing to FIU, um, a former conference foe that has always been at the bottom of Conference USA, has got to be a bitter pill. And um, it's a little satisfying to watch this. One, it sucks for the American because here you just brought it over North Texas. But the second thing I want to point out here is the reason they're melting down is because you're not supposed to be rebuilding. Like... You fired Seth Luttrell coming off of a Conference USA championship game. Right. 
you're supposed to be just kind of reloading and Morris should be making them look competent in these two games. And the fact that to watch Cal just like throttle them last week and then to see them come out and, I mean, they didn't get blown out, but just a tough loss over here. Things are starting looking good. Third thing I want to bring up is North Texas, it is clear that you hired the wrong former UIW coach. Right, yeah. They're probably wishing they had G.J. Kinney instead. They should have gone with Kinney. Um, I had questions about Eric Morris. I thought it would be fine, but I didn't think, and I think we talked about this in our preview, I didn't think he was a huge improvement over Seth Luttrell. What North Texas needed was a huge improvement over Luttrell, and you didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us in this episode. So thank you for joining us on the Hail Married podcast. I'm Atoves. And I'm the Toves. We'll be back next week to review our win against Army. Birds up. <laughs>